This is an ABC podcast. When is it not so kind to give someone a bunch of flowers? Well, this week on Download This Show, the answer is when you do it on the video sharing app TikTok. When a viral stunt goes wrong, it raises all kinds of issues over consent and care online. Plus, Uber were once considered to be the bad boy of the tech world. Its launch into many markets around the world was considered controversial, in some cases outright illegal. But new documents outlining its early days offer a window into exactly what was going on behind closed doors. Also on the show, what kind of ads can you expect to arrive on Netflix in the coming months? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guests this week, RN Technology Reporter. I'm going to go with RN Technology Reporter Extraordinaire. Oh, bless. <laughs> Ariel Bogle, welcome back to Download This Show. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. And joining us for the very first time, Reinhard Soshin, uh, who is the other half of the Tech for Evil podcast. Welcome to Download This Show. G'day. Thanks for having me. Does it live up to your expectations? It does. I love the studio. He's already taken a selfie. It's been, it's been quite a moment. And he's done an impression of like uh, a certain easy listening radio station because of the microphones. It's a ho- he's, having a whole, like, he's having a whole moment. I'm having it? a geek out. It's lovely. I love it. <laughs> All right. We're going to start off uh, by, you know what? It's a company we actually, I feel like we haven't talked about in a while. Um, uh, Uber have had a cache of their inside workings unveiled to us. Uh, and we, this actually happened last week and, and it happened after we recorded the show last week. So what have we learnt, Ariel? What, what, what has been unveiled? It's interesting. It's one of those document leaks where you're like, well, that's a lot of documents. These stories are amazing. But then at the same time, I'm not surprised by anything in them. I feel like Uber has had over the years so much negative reporting about it and justified, uh, you know, the travel, the journey of Travis Kalanick, you know, the rise and fall, the way that they used kill switches to um, like block data from investigators, the way they entered countries knowing that it was completely an illegal uh, business they were setting up, the way they undermined the tax system of various countries. This has all been in the ether. Mm. But what this leak of more than 124,000 documents um, has done is really just cement that and give us more grist for the mill, I suppose, (laughs) (laughs) about Uber's uh, journey into almost every country in the world. Yeah, I was about to say make a great miniseries and then I realised it was a miniseries. Um, I guess that, that that is kind of the, the, the strange thing about Uber's journey. And, and you mentioned Travis Kalanick, who, of course, was, was he the... Founder fa- and yeah. CEO. What's the reaction of the industry to stuff like that? Is it like, oh, yeah, cool. Now we just have evidence of a thing we always knew. Or are there genuinely interesting things that kind of speak to bigger issues in in technology that, that you can kind of read in the tea leaves of, of something like this? Mm, I think it's probably a bit of both. There's probably some... Uh, some insiders that would be looking at this going, yeah, I think that was that sounds about right. That's what we'd expect from a business that wants to fail fast, fail early and grow at a rapid rate around the planet. And so I guess we could expect that these are the types of things that an executive might, might want to do. But 
I got to say, I, I agree with because it, it, if if it was me advising that whistleblower, I'd say hold on to some of those documents and just launch a career in the scriptwriting business because some of some of what's come out sounds more like a, a, a James Bond villain. Uh, more dastardly than the last. Uh, and, and it has confirmed, I think, for a lot of people that this is what's been happening. So it does raise a lot of questions as well because if we cast our minds back a few years, Uber's expansion was also met with a lot of resistance. We had a lot of protests. We had people in the streets. We had tyre fires on highways from taxi drivers and all sorts of professional drivers around the around the planet and and yet somehow Uber prevailed. Mm. So what's been interesting about this airing of dirty laundry for Uber is just how just just how dastardly these companies are willing to go in order to get there. But also that it kind of works as well. Like, you know, you look at this stuff and it's not, it doesn't paint a pretty picture, Ariel, but they're still here. It was striking in the Uber files, uh, the close relationship many of the company's executives had with politicians, especially in Europe, and you know some that became world leaders like the current president of France, Emmanuel Macron. I think he was economics minister at the time when some of these documents came out, the way that he helped Uber when they were being met with really strong pushback from the taxi industry in France and other regulators. And two, just the callousness, I think, that um, some of these issues were discussed. So there's an example of a message from Kalanick, then the CEO of Uber, I think, who uh, in reaction to some to the possibility of violence against Uber drivers in France during some of those quite heated protests, that he that he welcomed the violence and he said, I think, the violence guarantees success. He liked the optics is how that message really reads. And, of course, he disputes that characterisation in the statement to The Guardian. But, you know, it's, it's that kind of behind-the-scenes look, I think, that's really valuable from these documents. But then there's also, like, at its core, there's, like, a, at, at the very DNA of it, there's this issue of, like, well, when a company starts and there's no legal framework for it to exist, is it illegal or is it something else? Should, it, should we be thinking about it in some other terms? Now, I think some of the behaviour at play with Uber, <laughs> you know, stretches very clearly into illegal territory, depending on which uh, territories we're talking about here. But, but that, that there's also that issue of, like, when you do set up a tech company and there is no legal frame for it, what do you call it? Is it illegal? Is it extra legal? Is it a grey area? And I think in some ways Uber's kind of like the patient zero of that for me, like, in, in terms of broader tech companies. I don't know if I'm alone in that kind of interpretation of it. Well, I think, like, there's a site, there's another sort of layer to put on that framework that you've presented there, which is the true speed of the economics of it. So venture capital allowed Uber to operate at a loss for years and years, just pumping VC money into that company to allow it to have the wherewithal to expand at the rate it did ahead of legal frameworks to be sure. But other sort of competitors, the taxi industry, for example, had to play by the traditional rules. And so that that sort of money element there, I think, is important to consider too, that it, you can, yes, operate ahead of or outside legal frameworks if you've just got the cash. And that's another sort of element here too. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's why you know the relationship with politicians is important to kind of ex- to to be aware of. It is a kind of important to look at and go, okay, so this didn't just happen because consumers like this product, and and indeed it has to be said that consumers have proven themselves all around the world to like Uber as a product for all of its issues. But at the same time, it didn't just happen because consumers liked it. The market didn't just make it so. There were other things that happened as well, Reinhardt. There was a very compelling, I guess, and authentic. Uh, 
question in people's minds around the disruptive benefits of this because digital disruption as a concept was also, I think, being formulated around this time. And it was, I think, instantly seen as rather benign and progressive and powerful and beneficial for society, no matter what. If it was disruptive, it was good. And I think we're now learning to challenge that. The other thing I'd add there too, in terms of the coziness, like it's just interesting to read uh, Mark McGann, who is the leaker's kind of what he has to say about this leak, why he's leaking now. And he, he himself had extremely close relationships with a number of leaders in Europe and other jurisdictions where he was the lobbyist. And, you know, I guess it's another, it's another sort of moment of seeing how the other half live, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> the rooms they meet, you know, the fact that Travis Kalanick was um, annoyed that Joe Biden was late for their meeting, you know, these kinds of um, small insights are really fascinating about the files too. And also uh, I think too the one thing we haven't mentioned is Uber's, of course, we mentioned a bit about the money there with the VC funding, but its evasion of tax is another, well, some people might say Uber has not paid its fair <laughs> share are, of tax. There are accusations that have been levelled <laughs> that it has not paid its fair share and of tax in various different exactly. uh, places and, around the world. Yes. And uh, apparently uh, off the back of some of these files, the um, Netherlands State Secretary for Finance have called for an investigation into whether the Dutch tax office gave Uber favourable treatment because there's some internal text messages text messages and other records that show um, Uber executives talking about how Dutch authorities were trying to slow down, quote unquote, the sharing of information during an audit by tax agencies in some other European countries. So again, that kind of potential coziness there, giving Uber really a head start and uh, over all its competitors. Is it fair to say that Uber has changed? I'd say there's potential they came out with a public statement saying, look, we admit to wrongs in the past. And the new CEO under his leadership, Dara Kosrashani, has uh, been rumoured to transform things for the better. But in the same breath, in that same statement, added that Uber's leadership at the time were acting under the approval of their legal and um, compliance groups. But they did claim that they stopped using that kill switch in 2017, which was at the changing of the guard in the, in, in the CEOs there. But I think that remains to be still seen what is going to unfold here. Um, I think that we're waiting to see if the bad guys get what they deserve before the credits roll. But I have a feeling there's going to be a part two to this story because, as Ariel mentioned, in, in Europe, I think the part two to this will be a lot of European countries, France, Belgium, Italy, uh, the Netherlands, Ireland, Spain, Finland, they're all implicated in these documents at some pretty high level. So I think that... Uber doing deals with major political figures um, has proven a successful model for them. So I think the temptation perhaps to go back into that territory uh, is is high, but it'll need to be scrutinised quite carefully. And I think it will be uh, going to parliamentary inquiries across Europe. But the, the utter bulldozing of cab and taxi operators around the planet now having access to this and looking back, I think will mean that um, there will be some controls that Uber will have to uh, think about <clears throat> because I, I don't think I don't think not changing is a real option for them if they want to remain commercially viable and keep their brand um, as powerful as it has been. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in Australia, they certainly have far more competitors now. There's a whole bunch of different uh, similar companies operating here. 
I think really significantly, the Transport Workers Union and Uber agreed to um, give the drivers a minimum earnings safety net plus some other kind of workplace protections they didn't have before. There's probably going to be a decent push under a Labor government to protect workers that work in this kind of quote-unquote flexible um, economy, Uber and other kind of similar uh, corporations. So it is a moment of change for them potentially, I think, and something worth looking closely at how the labour movement kind of pushes back against Uber and these documents only offer more ammunition. Mm. Watch this space. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Ariel Bogle, RN technology reporter and Reinhard Soshin from the Tech for Evil podcast. Mark Fennell is my name. And you may very well be seeing ads on Netflix very soon. Uh, news this week that Netflix will be teaming up with Microsoft, of all people, to deliver ads. Of all of the different companies that they could t- team up with to do ads, why Microsoft? Like, forgive me that I don't associate Microsoft with uh, online delivery of ads and maybe that's because I'm not paying enough attention, Reinhardt. Yeah, well, yes, to first approximation, I guess you'd look at that and say, yeah, what's what's the partnership about there? But Microsoft has actually spent quite a... There are two reasons here, two factors, I think, that Netflix has partnered with Microsoft in particular. I think it's mutually beneficial for both of them. Mm. Uh, for Netflix, I think what Microsoft is bringing is huge amounts of smarts because they've actually been developing Microsoft ads as a as a as a business uh, side of what they what they do for a while now through various acquisitions. Um, <clears throat> you mean they've developed on from Clippy? Like it's not going to be Clippy's not going to pop up in the middle of Stranger Things. You're like, <laughs> you looks like you need to, to buy a thing. Yeah, lucky yes, we get to be interrupted with all these uh, <laughs> ads in one more place in our lives. But <laughs> what I guess I mean is that if we look at Microsoft's history, say with Bing and MSN, to mm. the acquisition of web analytics software firm uh, Deep Matrix back in 2006 so um, and buying Xander, uh, which advanced this sort of next generation of digital advertising for Microsoft using that big data AI uh, for some time now. And there's a, a very particular thing that Microsoft does with this, with the, with the ad placements, if that, is that if Netflix can show to their advertisers through Microsoft's platform that their ad is targeting the right demographic, mm. the value of that ad can be increased. So the bid on that ad can go up, making that ad more valuable in real time. So that's a unique proposition that Microsoft is bringing to Netflix and saying, look, we can use your platform we can connect advertisers with a demographic and we can show those advertisers key metrics about the performance of that ad and make this very profitable for you. So I think what Netflix gets out of this is the fact that right out of the gate, their mid-tier offering around um, uh, this sort of partially partial subscriber model, partial pay-for uh, subscription model um, will be very profitable right out of the gates because they have some. I think they have some pro- profitability uh, problems at the moment that they're going to have to address very quickly. For Microsoft, they get Netflix usership. So, I mean, so straight out of the gate, Microsoft as an ad tech company is is pretty well developed, is pretty sophisticated. But we should talk about the roots of how Netflix got into this position. Why is it that Netflix is at a position where they they feel like they need to put advertising on a platform after all these years, Ariel? Well, they've had some mixed results in the uh, quarterly reports. So they lost subscribers, I think, in the first quarter of the year, which got a lot of attention. And they also projected forward showing some not exactly 
dire but not as great results that they predicted for the rest of um, the year, and that really spooked shareholders. I don't know. I, I find some of the co- the alarmist coverage about Netflix a bit a bit questionable. I guess like it's still a major streaming platform. It still has just an infinite amount more content than any of its competitors. Yes, it has a lot more competitors now than it did. And, you know, Disney Plus probably really significantly. I was going to say more, more than Disney? Yeah, they have way, way more than Disney. Really? Yeah, I think they wrote, let me see. This is a, these are just random internet stats. So <laughs> uh, don't uh, take these. going to be one of the backup titles of this show, random internet <laughs> random stats. Random internet stats. <laughs> the best I could find at short notice was that Netflix has more than, um, 2,000 shows and more than 4,000 movies, while Disney Plus has only about 752 movies and 197 TV shows. Yeah, right. That's I mean, it's pretty, it's big brands. It's Marvel, it's, yeah, yeah. it's Di- Star Wars, etc. Yeah, D- Disney has very blue chip brands, very blue chip expensive brands. blue chip brands, but I take your point, yes. And that's, that's another issue with Netflix. I mean, at the beginning, they were so successful because they were a place where it just had all the content you wanted, but as other um, brands have created their own streaming platforms and taken their IP content back, mm. they're having to create more original shows and, you know, movies of questionable quality. <laughs> I think it's interesting too, though, to think... Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that Netflix's rom-coms are not to your liking? <laughs> I'm, I'm saying it's not quite hitting me, hitting it bang on the money for me personally, if you like... <laughs> If you like it, that's fine, Mark. I love how you, we confidently went into Uber and saying all this stuff, and then we're like, do we want to say mean things about Netflix's rom-coms? <laughs> I'm happy to say. Too far, too far. Netflix's rom-coms are just bad. Hey, we got it out of her. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know. But I think it's interesting too, though. I, they are the issue that a lot of people are talking about right now is the fact that people just share passwords mm. to Netflix. And so you, like, you might share one with your mum, you might share one with your like sister or brother. I guess the issue too is like when not entire dorm rooms of colleges share one Netflix account and maybe this like lower, cheaper tier option with a bit of ads is going to be a solution there too. But I just want to um, refer to another podcast. Apologies, Mark, for talking it's about right. another it's podcast. We're, we're a big family here. Like. On your podcast. Um, this is called The Town. Um, it's a sort of Hollywood industry podcast, I guess, um, by a guy called Mark Bellany. And he was oh, talk- from Puck. For Puck, yeah, exactly. yeah. Matt, Matt, Matt Bellany is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt Bellany, and he is was talking about uh, with some of his guests about the sort of fate of Netflix and the fact that it's partnered with Microsoft to perf- to have this ad tier. And apparently, at some of these ad get-togethers that the ad industry have at Cannes and places like that, Netflix was just like the complete bell of the ball. Because mm. if you think about it advertisers would love to have their ads against Netflix content. It's far less risky than having your ad against like random um, white supremacist YouTube videos or um, really crappy content from your aunt on Facebook. It's really a promising kind of premium ad space. Premium ad space in a digital environment. Yeah, yeah, I can see the appeal of that for sure. Yeah, no, um, and actually, I, I back you uh, on uh, on recommending Matt Bellany's podcast. I think it's a really great podcast, and you should listen to it alongside the Tech Freeful podcast as well. Thanks, um, Mark. So, when we talk about how we think these ads are going to look, like I, I think I think it's it's fair to say that um, uh, that I, I I totally get the logic that it's a, it's a prestigious place to put your ads on online for the ad industry. But for those of us who are mere plebs, who are simply <laughs> consumers of the content, uh, what is it likely to look like? Is it, do we think it's going to be closer to a television experience where shows are interrupted by ads? Or given what you were saying earlier, Reinhardt, about the fact that it's sort of being fueled by some really smart ad tech, is it going to be closer to a digital ad experience with 
banners and well, no, I mean, God, nobody wants banners, but you know, what, like how, how different is it going to be from what we kind of expect? I guess there's, yeah, there's, it's a, a it's early days yet. So I'm, I, even I'm keen to be watching this space too, because with the fact that you've got the remote control in your hand, maybe there's a potential here for interactive ads where you can click and follow and perhaps a gamification of the ads. I'm not quite sure as it's Gee, quite God, early days. Gee, the but... least sexy combination of words I've ever heard anyone say. <laughs> gamification of ads. Yes. God, part of me just shriveled up and died right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, I think, some aspect to innovation will be part of this partnership, I think. And the experience will be radically diff- d- different. Um, maybe in part a bit of a television experience but i think one of the big draw cards for netflix is the fact that it's ad free so it's a it, it is a radical departure what it signals for me though is something rather uh, perhaps unintentionally profound is that in the course of our research uh, so shamelessly plugging tech for evil uh, oh, look at Manal, you both Manal, just like Sharif plugging everyone else's podcast yes. front and center. it's fine well in the course of our research one of the repeating things we come across is that a question now that's being asked is how do we put big tech in check? What are some of the ways that we can uh, address the excesses of big tech? And fundamentally, it comes down to the business model and the ad, the surveillance advertising business model drives a lot of these products. And in doing so, it drives a lot of the darker behaviors as well. Mm. So one of the proposed antidotes has been a subscription model. So imagine, for example, that you're paying for Facebook, you're paying for Instagram, you're paying for TikTok and other social media uh, products, the the um, <clears throat> the incentives that tr- currently drive a lot of dark behaviours are lessened. So for me, what's interesting about this story is that Netflix and Microsoft will perhaps challenge that idea because now this antidote of the, of the subscription-based model is being merged with advertising. And so I wonder if that also poses a philosophical question as to whether or not it's a real antidote to the surveillance-based advertising model that's driving products like Netflix. I also question, you know, when I remember when Netflix started, the the commentary, I think it was slightly off, but the commentary was off was that they knew all this stuff about us, that it acquired all this data and they were using that data to kind of commission shows. And I think in the end it sort of emerged that actually that wasn't quite as true as people sort of thought it was. Like the fact that they knew that I watched uh, the following rom-coms, Beauty in the Briefcase, uh, You're So Cupid and relationship status, it's complicated, just three of the excellent rom-coms you can find on Netflix. The fact they knew that didn't necessarily mean that they knew that much more about me. The question I have is all of the data that Netflix as a company has acquired over the last decade or so has really been geared towards viewer behaviour, what I'm going to watch, what I want to watch next. I don't know whether the data that they've acquired is actually optimised for, te- for telling them what I want to buy because I actually think that's a, I, I wonder if there's slightly different data points. And, and I don't know that necessarily that those two things align. I, I could be wrong, but I, I just feel like as a business, all of the data it's put together has really been about one thing. It's like, keep me on the platform, stop me from cancelling. And I don't know it's necessarily about what is going to make me buy. Like, I don't know if they know what kind of dishwashing liquid I'm likely to buy next. Ooh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'd be cautious about... Um about, yeah, any pronouncements about surveillance advertising being dead here because we don't know what data Microsoft is bringing to the table, how they're going to try and match the data pools that they have, whether it's data they've collected themselves from their vast suite of products or whether they've bought data sources from data brokers or similar, what data pools they're bringing that they'll try to match with 
accounts on Netflix. And the strategy here is really has not been laid out. And finally here on Download the Show, when does a Good Samaritan Act not end up being a Good Samaritan Act? There was a very unusual story this week where a, uh, a so-called kindness TikTok, a, a video uh, that did the round on the social media service of a young gentleman handing an old woman a bunch of flowers randomly in a shopping mall, um, went viral for, I guess, all of the wrong reasons. It turns out the woman saw it and she was like, I don't really want to be part of this. And she ended up talking actually to the ABC amongst other people. And it did kind of spark something in me, which is like, these videos are everywhere, right? And they're not just on TikTok, they're on Instagram as well. And it's never, and, and maybe this is because I'm a complete idiot, but I'd never really processed that there's no like structure around the consent to be in these videos, is there, Ariel? No, not really. I mean, obviously law around this can vary, but in general, in a public place uh, for a TikTok like this or a little Instagram video, there's not much you can do to withdraw your consent. It's not like, uh, you're being filmed for a te- a movie or for television in which you might have to sign a consent release form. Unfortunately, this woman, Marie, um, was approached at a shopping centre, I think in Melbourne. And, um, yeah, I I was really struck by this because I've always felt these videos are creepy. As it's a little exploitative, right? Yeah. yeah. But it was really interesting to hear from the other side what it's like to be in one. And it is true when you look at these videos, and they are a complete genre, I guess you might call them, like random act of kindness TikToks or something like this is the genre. It's always like approaching women, mm. older women, people of colour, homeless people. It's never just like he's not going up to like a 16-year-old boy or like a man in a suit and giving him a bunch of flowers in general. And so there is a kind of like who in society do we th- pity a little bit and we want to give them a moment of joy by handing a random woman a bunch of flowers and that was really clear in her reaction to it as she told the ABC she felt dehumanized by the video and by going viral for this video in which she did not feel boosted and pleased by a bunch of flowers from a random guy. That was the thing that stood out to to me even though there was no malicious intent sometimes that kind of masks effect in a way. I can't put myself in his mind, the creator, um, Harrison Pollack, but this idea of malice, I guess I push back on that a little bit. Like maybe he did not do it to humiliate her, but there's a callousness about it, I suppose, a sort of um, a disregard for the feelings of others in the name of content because it's not that he is just doing random acts of kindness out of the goodness of his heart because then you would do them off camera He's building a profile. He's make, trying to make money. Mm. You know, there, there's a lot of lack of transparency about this industry. And I will say it's an industry because um, in some cases, these kindness videos actually solicit donations for some of the people they come across. Mm. This is especially common in videos made in places like in um, South America. I've seen people try and do these videos in places like Mexico and others, Brazil, and they go up to people and they give you know, a kid on the street, you know, some toys, some money, and then they say to their followers, please donate and I'll go back and give these people the cash. Mm. Very little transparency about how that cash is distributed, um, these kinds of things. So it, it is an industry that he's participating in and it has a kind of callous disregard for the feelings of others who are being forced to participate. And don't forget she was duped because she did ask if she was being filmed and then uh, yeah, they responded said, no, yeah. that they told her no. Well, see, that's a problem. <laughs> that's, yes. 
Yeah. Have, yeah, I haven't heard from him on that point. And I, I guess just to expand it to, it is, as a, as journalists, we are also in the business of content creation. And in general, we do ask people if they want to participate in our stories. But mm. there is a tense relationship there, I would say, that we're part of this expanded economy too, because often when we do stories, we are hoping that they will have a positive impact. But at some point, we are using people's stories for our own content and the impact on them can be pretty variable, even if you do try to walk people through the possibilities of how a story might be received. Mm. And with that, I shall leave you. Uh, Reinhard Soshin, thank you so much for joining us and download the show. How was the experience? Pleasure. It was fantastic. Thanks for having me. We didn't traumatise him nearly enough, Ariel. What did we, do? What, we just didn't... We'll give that, it time. That comes later. Oh, that bit comes later. The hazing starts after the microphone turn off. <laughs> uh, Ariel Bogle, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks, Mark. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. 